What's up? It's ya pal Wench Against Thoticus, and this is The Bar is Low. Every episode, we take a look at a fan fiction or a collection of fan fiction, and these can be either good, bad, or in between, but mostly, they're bad. I want to start this off with part of the author's foreword. I'll read it. I hope I don't sound pretentious because really, everyone knows this quote, but Frederick Nietzsche once said that if you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. After watching this movie over and over, getting to know every frame, I've come to realize that Nietzsche was wrong. The abyss doesn't gaze back. The abyss cannot gaze back. The abyss is the blackness of the human soul driven not by a rational thought, but by grasping all-consuming gluttony. It is Azathoth, the blind idiot god, the nuclear chaos at the center of infinity, the amorphous blight beyond angled space whose mindless existence can only be described as deafening sensation. The abyss is the room. Come, gaze into the mouth of madness with me. So today we're covering a novelization of the best bad movie of all time, Tommy Wiseau's infamous masterpiece, The Room, from 2003. This bold effort describes every scene in this goddamn movie, line for line, action for action. And you're probably thinking, what's the point of writing a novelization of it, and more importantly, why the fuck am I about to listen to someone do an auditory summary of a book of a movie? Well, this is more than a simple novelization, because this person has added some behind-the-scenes stuff. Of course, I'm going to be summarizing and reading quotes, as usual, but this episode, I'm also going to try to take a more analytical approach than I do when I'm, you know, talking about straight-up porn. This is a novel, and honestly, I'm using this as a bit of a relief episode, because there's only so many weeks of smut in a row I can do before I start to go a little insane. The sexual content today is pretty minimal, and when it is there, it isn't graphic, so I'm counting this as a relief episode, even though it isn't quite as lighthearted as some we've done in the past. So first off, we gotta talk about the writing style and how it works, or doesn't work, but it mostly works for the adaptation. This person's pretty good with the English language, as you can tell by the little excerpt of that foreword I just read. Their style isn't overly flowery, trying to stay pretty straightforward most of the time, but when they want to be descriptive or eloquent or just evoke a certain mood, they can pull it off pretty well. Even so, I'd say sometimes they do overdo the descriptions. I know they're trying to be faithful to the movie and all, but that doesn't mean that you have to describe what all the characters are wearing every time they come on screen or on page here, rather. Though this phenomenon does happen more towards the beginning of the fic when they were still probably trying to figure out what direction they wanted to go with all this. And one thing they nailed was the inclusion of narration. Narration is crucial for this adaptation beyond just getting character thoughts and background knowledge. In a movie, you know, a lot of exposition, like the stuff about relationships and plot background, you have to shoehorn it in there. And it can be conveyed really clumsily through dialogue. This is really just a stylistic advantage that written media has over film, which they definitely use to their advantage in this fic. And an added bonus of the narration is for the author to just drag on the shitty writing, ideas, acting, you know, so on in the movie. And believe me, I have plenty of examples I'm going to read along the way. So just a small thing. I don't think the word fiancé is used once in this fic. In true fashion of the room, they only say stuff like future wife and future husband, and they say it a lot. Interesting choice to stick to that even outside the dialogue, you know, in the narration. And my biggest problem with this fic is that it doesn't wrap up a lot of the new subplots that it introduces, which means that there's room for a sequel, but that'll probably never happen, sadly. Because I would read the shit out of the sequel of this, honestly. There were a lot of loose ends. 
So let's go, fellas. The fix starts out as faithful as you can get to the movie. The first chapter is just fucking boring. And that's not really a fault of the writers. It's just how this movie is. <laughs> the sex scene is described as being a blur, which, you know, fortunately that's accurate. Surprisingly, there aren't any digs at the naval penetration that goes on during that part. And the clothing description here is kind of what I was talking about earlier. It's just like too much talking about what they're wearing. And they also spend like a full paragraph on Denny eating that goddamn apple. Some additions are how the narration discusses Denny's feelings for Lisa straight away, and we get to see what the hell was going through Lisa's mind, but like only a little. And I really would have liked to see more of her thoughts throughout this fic, but they don't dig very far into her backstory, or Johnny's either, really. Mark, Peter, Claudette, and Denny are all gonna get fleshed out a bit more, but neither of the main characters do, oddly enough. Uh, Johnny's gonna be pretty one-dimensional. His only traits are that everyone loves him, well, except Lisa, and that he loves everyone, especially Lisa. That's really all he gets, and Lisa, they add something important to her character, but I feel like that was it, and more on that important thing later, because we have to talk about some mundane shit first. So it's revealed in the first scene with Claudette that Lisa's kind of horrified by her new revelation that she doesn't love Johnny anymore. More. And that's really, I think, all the thoughts we get on her relationship outside of what's shown in the movie, uh, which I'm disappointed in. Claudette, of course, you know, tells her that she can't support herself because she's a woman and she holds fucking middle-aged ideas about that type of shit. And the author hasn't mocked this yet. Believe me, though, they will go off on Tommy Wiseau's sexism. And one thing I always did genuinely like, like, you know, unironically like about The Room is that Lisa and Claudette have that little greeting where they boop each other's noses. I always I thought that was kind of cute. It kind of felt natural too. Then of course, Lisa calls up your boy, oh hi Mark. And this is really where we get the first new stuff added to the plot. So, you know, Lisa wants to talk to him now, but he's very busy sitting in his car and she's like, you owe me bitch. And in the narration, fucking love that narration. It goes on to explain that Lisa let Mark creep around in her bathroom. She doesn't really know it, but he was collecting some samples of Johnny's hair. Now that shit's sitting in the police station for testing mysterious yes it will come back and in fact as theories have suggested mark is doing some shady shit in his car he's doing a stakeout and he's stalking johnny now this next scene isn't as much of a game changer like the last was but this author has done a decent job filling in the subplots that showed up for like one minute and then vanished forever namely claudette's breast cancer and later on the whole chris r thing and i like the direct characterization we get to see of claudette here we get to see her perspective rather than just how she's seen through other characters like pretty much she just goes to the doctor for a checkup and she thinks like everything's just a load of bullshit just a scam to wring money out of people then they tell her she's got cancer and she's like, well, fuck. So the Lisa and Mark sex scene rips straight from the movie. Their dialogue's line for line. But the sex scene is actually written very sensuously. It's a stark contrast. It's like really intimate softcore porno about staircase sex. I never did get why they fucked on that staircase because... You know, that just doesn't seem comfortable, but I guess if you can make that sexy and not be really sore in weird places afterwards, why not? I mean, I guess after sex you're gonna be sore in other places, so like why not add more places to places that are gonna be sore? So uh, more importantly than Claudette's cancer backstory, mainly because it takes some more creativity to come up with, we gotta learn about why Denny owes Chris our money. Drug dealers hang out in libraries, guys. Okay, I have no idea how true this is. I've never bought drugs off anyone. Only mooched them on the few occasions I've done shit like that. Don't do drugs, kids. And always remember to have safe sex, wear a condom.
okay you do all know that i drink but like wear a fucking condom and also don't do hard drugs like the amphetamines that chris r sells because that shit's addictive but denny you know he's just hanging out in the library one day studying for finals and shit and chris r is like hey uh you seem tired how about a free sample of some goods and then he's like well that mysterious man just vanished and left his pill here i can't leave the pill here like what if a child eats it I guess I'd better take it. And then boom, Denny's addicted to drugs. And the thing is, yeah, he's a broke as fuck college kid, so he can't afford any more than the five he already bought with the last of his money. So Chris Star is like, okay, we'll work something out so you can buy this shit off me. How about you sell drugs to the kids at your school? Uh, give me five bucks for every pill and keep the extra you make off it? And as you know, that doesn't work out well for Denny. We'll get back to that though. The flower shop scene, oh my God. It's pretty unremarkable on a whole because, you know, they ripped it straight from the movie. But the theories on the dog just make me so happy. I'm going to read a quote. Anniversary flowers and gifts had been a landmark in the neighborhood for as long as almost anyone can remember. Its owner, a small, wizened dog that had never been seen to move from its perch on the countertop, was rumored to have made its fortune in an astounding array of fantastical ways. Some said he'd found a thick vein of gold during the San Francisco gold rush. Some said he was the former beloved pet of the Romanovs and had just barely escaped Russia with luggage full of the royal family's heirlooms. Others supported the more reasonable and less exciting and therefore the most likely conclusion that he had simply worked hard and invested his money wisely wherever he'd come from the pug was close-lipped about it often remaining completely silent when asked or sometimes letting out a low growl if pressed customers would sometimes question his employees thinking they had no particular reason to keep the dog's secrets but they had nothing to share at best those that had seen the deed to anniversary flowers and gifts could confirm that the pug was in fact the rightful owner but besides that all they could say was that their paychecks were always signed on time. The dog himself was a dedicated worker and a fair, if firm, boss. He was always the first to arrive in the store and the last to leave, always taking his customary position on the counter and watching his domain carefully. If a customer tried to take something without paying, he would know. If an employee tried to take a few extra minutes on their break, they would hear about it. From his heightened place on the counter, his rotund body, covered in fur growing white with age and looking ever more like a marshmallow the pug surveyed his shop ensuring that everything ran smoothly i love it i love how this dog is like god <sighs> this dog is tommy Wiseau because no one fucking knows where he came from but he's legendary anyway we get to the scene where lisa gets johnny to drink and i feel like it's missing the internal monologues again and the motivation that makes so many other parts of this fix so good like yeah I would love to know what the hell was going on in Lisa's head as she did all of this shit. The breast cancer scene with Claudette gets inside her head pretty fucking well, though, detailing the process of her kind of breaking the news by accident, like having it slip out, and her trying to cushion the announcement with like a feigned nonchalance that she thinks maybe worked too well when it seems like Lisa does not give a fuck. I really do want to get more inside Lisa's head, but maybe that was a conscious choice on the author's part. So, like I mentioned earlier, the author starts putting in some snarky commentary into the narration. It starts with some small stuff, and there's just an increasing amount of it as the fic goes on. And this is really the first one. After the chocolate scene with Michelle and Mark, there's a quote. What are these characters doing here? Claudette asked, inadvertently breaking the fourth wall. 
And now it's time for some more Chris R, or rather the last of Chris R. We even get some background on this fellow, which is nice. And I, I like hearing the shit this writer comes up with for characters. Here's another quote. Image was the entire reason Chris R had dubbed himself Chris R. He couldn't go around calling himself Chris. No one heard Chris and thought gangster. When asked what his chosen name meant, what the R really stood for, Chris R would always reply that it meant he would wreck your shit. He had to say something like that, even if he inwardly cringed every time he said it. He could never let anyone know what he really wished it meant. Rocker. That was what he always secretly wanted his nickname to be. All his life, he loved working with wood. It had calmed his normally hair-trigger temper, the way he could shape, sculpt, and smooth with only a few simple tools, turning mere boards and nails into functional, beautiful works of art. What's more, he was good at it. His specialty was rocking chairs, the strong but gentle arc of the runners, the stern but loving form of the seat, all gilded with his own fanciful carvings, a perfect perch from which to sit on a porch and watch the warm afternoon sun sink into the horizon, the light turning orange and red as it faded. In an ideal world, Chris R. would be known for his gorgeous rocking chairs. Nice! <laughs> nice! Yeah, that's uh, not what I expected to read, uh, but I like it. And Chris R. has to be a drug dealer, not really, you know, because the thug life calls to him, but because his mother's sick and he's just desperate for money to, to pay for her medical bills and like have enough left over to you know live because fuck ugh, our healthcare is shit and the chris r scene goes down just as it did in the movie i've always hated how cluda and lisa treat denny after mark and johnny take chris r away like the kid just had a fucking gun to his head he thought he was about to die and now they're yelling at him and grilling him on all this shit like let him recover a little then he can talk about it calmly the next day or something like think about how ridiculous this sounds i'm so mad at you for almost getting killed by a drug dealer like chill out he almost died don't yell at him He's already shook. You don't need to treat him like shit. And then Johnny and Mark very conveniently find a police officer to arrest Chris R. God damn it. I thought they were going to kill him like some theories suggested because they, you know, they took such a short time to run him to the police. But the author has bigger things planned for him. Not much bigger, but bigger than exiting the story right away. Chris R goes to jail, but his bail's mysteriously paid, so he gets to walk free. So he's confused, but he leaves the police station only to get jumped and pulled into a car where Lisa, fucking Lisa, kills him because he almost got the police interested in where she lives. The plot thickens. Everyone's involved in shady shit, huh? Lisa's life of crime is gonna get a little bit more spotlight later, and that's the important thing I was talking about that they added to her. Meanwhile, Mark is pretty excited about the Chris R thing because something like that happening right in Johnny's apartment, that means that they have a reason to search him. And we get a little more of a reveal on why Mark is after Johnny, but not too much detail. So Mark's partner in the police force, Bailey, got brutally stabbed to death and shoved into a dumpster and Mark thinks that Johnny did it or is somehow behind it, even though he doesn't have enough evidence to prove it. And the Ohio Mark rooftop scene is improved by some more internal monologue. This is why books are better than movies so much of the time. Like, I, I like to know what the characters are thinking. And in a movie like The Room, where no one acts like a regular ass human, that's extra important. And there's some more good narration commentary. I'm just going to read a bunch of quotes when talking about how little they understand women. Feigning distrust for 50% of the human race in order to further work his way into Johnny's good graces. And then... Uh, 
My Lisa's great when I can get it, Johnny noted, apparently considering having sex two out of the last three nights unsatisfactory. When Denny's telling Johnny about his crush on Lisa, go on, Johnny prompted, as if more information would improve the situation. And then Johnny wrapped his arm around Denny's shoulder as he channeled a used car salesman. If you have any problems, talk to me and I'll help you. Now the Lisa Michelle scene, I have to read it because it's just packed with commentary. It's great. All right, so we gonna go. He hit you, Michelle nearly shouted in shock and outrage, trying to dial it back a little. Lisa shrugged. He didn't know what he was doing, she sniffed, taking another sip of Merlot. Are you okay? She asked, concerned, scanning Lisa for any sign of injury. Well, I don't want to marry him anymore, Lisa told her in a statement that would be totally reasonable in an actual domestic abuse situation. What? Michelle demanded, apparently dismayed that her friend was considering breaking up with someone she claimed was abusive. Johnny's Lisa searched for the best wording as she set her glass aside. Okay, she finished, choosing possibly the worst descriptor for, again, someone she was claiming is a future wife beater before smirking. But I found someone else. A small laugh of disbelief escaped Michelle. Lisa, this isn't right, she chided her friend in the exact wrong emotional response. You're living with one guy and sleeping with another guy? I'm doing what I want to do, Lisa replied, a tendon in her neck jutting out with her annoyance. Well, who is he? Michelle asked conspiratorially. A warm smile spread across Lisa's face. His best friend, she said slowly, and he lives in this building. Her eyes wide. Michelle let out another laugh, apparently forgetting her concern for the feelings of Lisa's future husband. Women, am I right? I can't believe you're telling me this, she asked, putting the extremely obvious clues together. It's Mark, isn't it? Still smugly smirking, her fingers curled around the wine glass. Lisa nodded. Lisa, you know you're just thinking about yourself? Michelle chided her friend again, her eyes flicking to Lisa's glass of wine on the coffee table. Somebody's gonna get hurt, she warned her as Lisa took a deep sip from the glass in her hand. You've got to be honest with Johnny. I can't do that, Lisa told Michelle, the tendon in her neck tightening with rage at her friend's judgment. He would be devastated, she continued, as if she'd ever given any indication that she cared about her future husband's feelings. Well, if you care so much for him, why cheat on him? Michelle asked finally making a good point. Look, I really don't know what to do. Lisa's shoulders slumped, her face sank. I love Mark. I don't have any more feelings for Johnny. Johnny's so excited about this wedding, Michelle sighed, giving the last reason you should stay with someone. Seriously, she's either suggesting putting off an inevitable breakup until after a marriage, at which point the legal and financial issues will be added to the emotional ones, or just sucking it up and being unhappy forever, and all to avoid the awkward of canceling a wedding? What is wrong with her? And when Lisa says women change their minds all the time to Johnny on the subject of marrying him, it says in the narration, my god, even the women in this story think all women are cardboard cutouts. Uh, and then another quote, you're lying, I never hit you, he moaned, although he had just moments ago shoved her and he was just now ignoring boundaries that Lisa was very explicit about. I love how this started off as a serious attempt to turn the room into a novel and then the author just started adding new subplots and character motivations and now they've just started and will continue to fucking roast Ken until they lose their shit and all the narration is just commentary on the dumbassery of this movie. Um, next scene we get is Claudia and her ex-husband robbing a fucking bank because Lisa's throwing away her financial security by leaving Johnny. <laughs> 
And there's no follow-up on this, which is upsetting. Meanwhile, the police finally greeted Mark's pleas to pay attention to Johnny's house when they find Chris R's body in a fucking dumpster. But all that crime, we gotta take a break from that to get a bit more softcore porn of Michelle and Mike. He has her tied up and blindfolded. Like, bitch, please. We all know that Michelle's the one who tops in that relationship. They're safe for this football rest in peace. And the chocolate thing, it's still a theme in their sex. Let it go, you guys. It's not as erotic as you think it is. I mean, at least not to me. Eating chocolate is a great time, but it's a non-sexual one. Except for that one time. That's another story. <laughs> okay, now it's time for Peter to enter the fic. And he's my favorite character in this because the author did a total remake of him. And no, he's not like a crime lord or an undercover cop like all the other characters who got changed up. He's a fucking alien. Of all the characters in the room, you can make an alien. Peter doesn't exactly come to mind as the first one, but it works. Everything I've said about how great it is to get inside characters' heads applies doubly to him. They reveal more and more about Peter's species through narration as the fic goes on, and the main gist of it is really that he's been sent to Earth to study the primitive species known as humans, and Peter, quote-unquote, is a hologram. There's some fun facts we learn, including Peter's species is, to quote, a polysexual species that reproduced through psychic connections requiring a minimum of a dozen individuals, two females, three males, and a spectrum of all the sexes that fell in between. Peter himself is intersex. Love that representation without fetishization. Man, that should be the new way gays ask for representation in the media. Representation without fetishization. The males are like tentacle monsters. The females are like just orbs. And to be intersex means that you have like little tentacles and you're very round or just something like that. I guess it's just, yeah, it's just spectrum of sexes. Pretty cool. All of Peter's dialogue is so banal and generic, even though he's supposed to be a psychologist and therefore have an understanding of the human mind. And this explains why he talks like this. He's just really baffled as to why humans are so stupid and he doesn't understand them. Like, why did none of the men in this goddamn movie understand women? They have a whole lot more in common than they don't. And they certainly have a lot more in common with each other than they have with Peter, the alien. And when Johnny makes the cheap, cheap, cheap noises at him, he just goes through his database of bird calls and it doesn't match with a chicken. I love it. His rooftop scene with Mark is pretty great too. He's trying to figure out what the deal is with weed. It's really just another way to poke fun at the shitty writing. Not only by explaining Peter's bad dialogue, but by how he reacts to do situations such as, you know, Mark trying to fucking kill him. Quote, a woman showing a man her boobies instantly absolved him of all responsibility for his actions, making everything he did the woman's fault. Everyone knew that. And the tuck scene, too, was pretty great. Peter declines to play football in his formal wear because th that's not a thing that people do. And he searches his mind like, yeah, no information on such an anomalous occurrence in the database. And uh, of course, because he's an alien, that's also why he falls down during that scene. Pro tip, guys, if you're trying to understand human behavior, don't fucking start with Tommy Wiseau. Ugh, Peter gets taken off his mission, though. It's really sad to me. It was the end of something so beautiful. He is so short. He got too emotionally involved with the humans, so his superiors had to reassign him. And oh my god, this, <laughs> the anyway, how is your sex life scene? Another thing that this author does is make up backstories for all of the extras, including people in line at the coffee shop before Johnny and Mark. The first backstory isn't particularly strange, talking about the woman's tattoo. It feels natural, and then the <laughs> next one just jumps headlong back into crime, where this guy is on the phone and he's being fed directions to act normal and just like order a bagel, or else his daughter dies, and the woman with him is like keeping an eye on him for whoever's on that other end of the line. She's 
she's like, oh, the real money's in babysitting. All those years wasted starting uprisings in South Africa. Too bad. And the confidential bank client also piques Mark's interest because Johnny, he's supposed to be a crime lord. So maybe he'll have some sort of reaction if Mark keeps asking him about like money related stuff. I was surprised and disappointed that Mark didn't have any reaction to when Johnny oh so abruptly changes the topic because that seems sketchy to me. All right, so the birthday party is on a horizon at this point. It's a few more scenes to get through, though. First, there's this really short, random scene that I'm just gonna read. Danny slipped the VIN chain from around his neck, freeing the key, which he always wore under his shirt. It was the only copy of the key that existed, and he kept it hidden against his chest, where he could always feel it at all times. Yelling in front of the open closet, he pushed a pile of laundry out of the way to reveal a locked metal cabinet. He unlocked the door and let it swing open with a shriek. Behind the door, sitting in a small rectangular space, was a styrofoam head and neck on a pedestal next to a hairbrush. On top of the head sat a long, black, stringy wig. Danny he grabbed the hairbrush and lovingly combed it through the wig, keeping the hair paste perfectly maintained. After a few minutes, he carefully, reverently picked up the wig and placed it on his head, smoothing it out against his scalp, still adjusting his hair, making sure it looked like it was his own. Danny stood up and stalked over the full-length mirror standing in his bedroom. He stared at himself, admiring his image in the mirror. Would you fuck me? He asked his reflection, imitating Johnny's impenetrable accent. I'd fuck me. Danny, what the fuck? I thought he wanted to fuck Lisa, not Johnny. Like, Theresa, maybe? Why does she have a key? It's not that weird to keep a wig in your room. Why is it hidden? I don't understand that. There was this room fic I read called More Horsepower Than Most Horses, where Danny loved them like parents, but he would also watch them have sex. Oh wait, that's already canon, but that one they gave him permission to watch them. And there was also like a diaper fetish going on. It was weird. That's kind of the same vibe I get from this. Uh, Danny, you a freak. So I've spoken plenty about the commentary embedded in the narration, but here we are in the last Claudette Lisa scene where Lisa is once again explaining that she doesn't love Johnny and Claudette is insisting that gold digging is still the way to go. But here the author has just had enough and puts in a whole ass multi-paragraph author's note and I've also just got to read this. Oh, hi, audience. This is your humble narrator, Epipolylogies, for being so unprofessional as to interrupt since I've been trying and rather failing, as you noticed, not to editorialize, but this really bothers me. So Johnny's supposed to be great and perfect in every way, right? We're supposed to hate Lisa for cheating on him, not just because it's awful, but because she's betraying St. Johnny, yeah? Presumably, we're also supposed to think the moral course of action for Lisa is to stop sleeping with Mark and marry Johnny, despite the fact that she'd be unhappy for the rest of her life. I mean, that is what Tommy was saying here, right? That women can either have happiness or not be impoverished, and that's the way it should be. That once a dude has bought you stuff, it doesn't matter what you do or if you enjoy being around him, he's now earned you. You could say that Claudette is supposed to be the stereotypical gold digger, and she's meant as this example of a really wrong view of marriage, but the thing is, we are supposed to feel that Lisa is beholden to Johnny because he's given her things and because he's in love with her. Basically, she no longer has complete control of her situation because she owes Johnny her love. That's not even subtext. It's regular friggin' text. This fucked up toxic bullshit is starting to make me physically ill, but at least I no longer feel bad for making fun of this utter failure of a magnum opus or the twisted fuck who wrote it. Also, have you noticed that Lisa's in her early 20s? The actress was 22 at the time, and Claudette says they've been dating for over five years. Edit. Towards the end, Johnny clarifies that it's seven years. Think about it.
Gazing Abyss has had enough of this nice guy's finish slash bullshit. It's so easy to dismiss Tommy Wiseau as an accidental funny man, but if you take the room and the ideas espoused in it even a little bit seriously, which I know that's hard to do, you realize that he's kind of a piece of shit. Not to mention the stuff he did in The Disaster Artist. I do feel bad about saying that because he's given us such a wonderful gift that is this movie, but like he's kind of shitty. He's just kind of a shitty person. I hate how I feel bad about saying that. I shouldn't feel bad about saying that. Oh well. Love the art, not the artist. So this is the last scene before the birthday party. It's an added scene in which Mark stalks Lisa because she gets into a car with some shady dudes only hours before the birthday party starts. And he follows her to a warehouse full of cocaine and we find out that yes she's a drug lord and she figures out that he's an ex-cop mark tries to run but she sends her goons after him and she corners him and they fall into a pile of cocaine and start making out because she really does love him even though she just tried to kill him lisa am i right the birthday party has now come Everything beyond this point is just cat scenes, so we're done with whole drug ring, running, bank robbing stuff. I love their explanation for that random dude, Steven, who became vaguely important during this part of the movie for no apparent reason. He's Peter's replacement, and they've just fucked with the human's brainwave, so they think that he's always been their friend. He has such strong reactions to everything because he's overcompensating for not being the original Peter. I'm just gonna read some shorter quotes, including commentary on some canon lines, because we all know what happens at the party. Lisa says, I have something to show you. Oh, really? Mark asked, raising an eyebrow. Pretty sure it was her tits. And then, we're probably going to have a baby eventually anyway, Lisa asserted, despite the fact that she was supposedly desperate to get out of her relationship with her future husband, not to mention the fact that she was so evil, her womb was probably a barren wasteland. And I feel like I'm sitting on an atomic bomb, replacement Peter exclaimed, waiting for it to go off. In truth, he wished that there was an atomic bomb, located directly under where his hologram was projected, ready to cleanse Soul 3 of such evil. Please. And then... Wake up, man, Mark continued, shouting. What planet are you on? From his spot in the corner, replacement Peter reflexively tensed and put his finger on the self-destruct button. He relaxed as he realized the question wasn't directed at him. Then, you're just a cheeky and cheap, 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 cheap. He flacked his hands at his side, taunting Mark, incensed at the terrible imitation of a chicken. Mark hurled himself forward again, snarling as he slapped at Johnny's chest. Uh, here's some more quotes from Johnny's death scene and the one before it. Who are you calling a bitch? Lisa demanded. Not sure how cheating on her future husband, telling all his friends that he was abusive and then lying about being pregnant, made her a bitch. Then, hi, Mark. Lisa answered quickly, both seductive and anxious. I need to talk to you. What's going on? Mark asked, apparently still not getting how this worked. And then, Johnny flung himself onto the strip mattress like a teenager having a temper tantrum because their parents canceled their World of Warcraft account. The post-death scene mostly makes fun of Lisa and how she doesn't deserve to be in hysterics after, you know, driving Johnny to suicide. Like, why is she upset about this? She's responsible for it. Isn't this kind of what she wanted, even if it was a bit of an extreme solution? And then it ends. No added scenes. Aside from the commentary, the last few chapters were pretty much ripped straight from the movie. Uh, the new plots didn't get wrapped up, and that was my biggest problem with this fic. We never found out if Johnny was a murderer or crime lord or whatever, even though the evidence does point to no. And we don't even know the full story on why Mark was so intent on investigating him. Like, 
also what about Lisa's drug empire I would have liked to hear more on that and how play into the aftermath of this movie like maybe the cops show up and they think she killed Johnny or something and they take her in and then she gets busted for running a cocaine ring also and there was no follow-up on Claudette's bank robbery or how that helped anyone I wonder if Claudette knows about Lisa's cocaine ring if crime is in the family business and now that Denny's into drugs will Lisa recruit him in some way I didn't expect to see this one wrapped up but what happened to Chris R's mom once he died and, and therefore became unable to provide for her and her medical treatment I don't know I would have liked to see the crime part of this fic at a good solid conclusion I feel like this might even need a sequel even if they went with the simplest ways to wrap up these plot lines that would be ignoring a lot of potential so in spite of not wrapping up these goddamn plot lines, I really did enjoy this fic. It was written well, faithful movie, while still taking plenty of creative liberties, and it was full of snarky commentary. I loved that. My favorite thing was Peter being an alien. That really did it for me. It did everything I just outlined, just being faithful to the movie, taking creative liberty, and doing snarky comments. It just crammed it into all one character, and I wish he could have gotten more scream time, but you can blame Tommy Wiseau for that. And you've heard me say this a million times by now, but getting inside the characters' heads and learning about their motivations made things much more interesting and revealing. I wish we could have gotten more on Johnny and Lisa's background and their relationship too, but I feel like that was an intentional choice. Honestly, it seems like Johnny's suicide is just another step forward in advancing a plot between the drug lords and the police. Seriously, I do want a sequel because ending it here was a missed opportunity. So today we covered The Room, a novelization by Gazing a this. That's one word. The Bar is Low is on Instagram. You can find us with The Bar is Low with an underscore in between each word. Follow us. You'll know what's coming up next. If you want to drop a rating or review on iTunes, that'd be real cool. Not going to beg for five stars. Give me however many damn stars you think I deserve. As always, I'm your pal, Wenchik. It's Thoticus. This is The Bar is Low. Thank you for joining me. And that's all for today.